Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And on this month's Paper Scraps, we'll be answering your TV writing questions about reference letters, international writing programs, spec scripts, of course, and fonts. Plus, we will be talking about the latest TV writing news, including the WGA 2020 MBA. So let's get started. <laughs> First up, as always, we would love to thank our latest Patreon subscribers. Your support means so much. It allows us to keep running this podcast every week and bringing you great content. So we would like to thank David, Matt, Paul, and Joey, who uh, all subscribed recently, especially during uh, COVID-2019. We really appreciate the new support. Uh, We know that these are really difficult times. I hope that you are enjoying the podcast so far and your special Patreon perks. And on that note, let's talk about some of our recent uh, Twitter mentions, because there have been a few. First up is Miles Warden. Yeah, so Miles Warden posted about how much he enjoyed one of the Script Notes episodes. And then in that thread, another guy, Ryan Christensen, commented and said he was just getting into writing and found this writing podcast and asked for other recommendations. So Miles helpfully pointed him to some great podcasts out there. He says, uh, welcome, Hilliard's Screenwriter's Rant Room, John August Script Notes, Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, Children of Tendu with Jose and Javi, Paper Team with TV Calling and NJ Watson, and the WGA West, Third and Fairfax and East on writing podcasts are the best classes you can take. Uh, And he says, all of these podcasts have a crazy back catalog that'll keep you entertained and learning for a while. Good luck, man. Uh, so yeah, thank you to Miles for the shout out. It's it's nice to be included amongst such luminaries. Yeah, it's always great to be listed amongst those uh, heavyweights. Yeah, those are all our favorite podcasts too. So it's yeah, pretty awesome. <laughs> and he's not wrong about the back catalog because we're <laughs> hitting what is this like 180 episodes? Yeah, we're on 183 right wow. now. I think so. It's uh, we're getting closer and closer to 200. The next uh, tweet we wanted to mention is the Nickelodeon Writing Program, who tweeted out a link to our episode, or rather their episode with us, which was PT 179 talking all about the program, the application process, the selection process, the program itself, all those things. Honestly, if you haven't checked out the episode, it's worth a listen. When you're listening to this very episode, there will be only a few days, I think um, maybe a week left in the application process for the Nick Fellowship. So you should definitely get on that if you haven't yet. Absolutely. And the next tweet was from Jeff Locker, who was replying to uh, Latoya Morgan, former guest of the podcast, friend of the podcast, who announced a uh, brand new overall deal with Warner Brothers TV, which is super exciting. And Jeff said, on a related note, I just listened to your interview on Paper Team. Sometimes industry chats can feel intimidating. This feels so hard most of the time, but yours was fun, inspiring, full of wisdom and informative without being overwhelming. Yay. Thank you so much for the shout out, Jeff. We appreciate it. We, we try to do our best with those interviews to make them interesting and human and not just kind of cold and industry-like. So if anyone wants to go back and listen to that episode, it was PT111. Absolutely. Yeah. It's always great to not just see a past guest success. I think we mentioned at some point, we have the paper bump, right? That's the, when the past guests have a tremendous success after coming on the podcast. <laughs> yes. I, mean, I, I, I don't think we can quite take credit for uh, her amazing work, but it's nice to pretend. <laughs> yes, exactly. In any case, uh, and we'll mention Latoya Morgan's overall deal later in this episode, but uh, really it's great to not just uh, see past guests uh, succeed for their uh, amazing efforts, but also, I mean, just the fact that their interviews are so well received, generally speaking, like you just said, the fact that 
you know, when we're setting those interviews up, we don't want to do the robotic answer uh, in the affirmative or the negative about these questions. It's really much more human, much more intimate. And really, we want to get as much advice as possible out of people, uh, especially to our audience. So it's really great that they always have such an impact on people. Absolutely. And last but certainly not least, uh, we'll mention Jimmy Mosqueda, who's actually a longtime uh, friend of mine and, and friend of the podcast. And uh, hopefully at some point, Jimmy uh, will appear on the podcast. He is writer on uh, Legacies on CW, but he has always been a huge fan of TV Calling the website and also the podcast. And he actually tweeted about both uh, recently, uh, notably about the podcast. He said, you should absolutely subscribe to the Paper Team podcast. Lots of great and valuable information from uh, TV Calling and underscore NG Watson. So a huge shout out and a thank you to uh, Jimmy Mosqueda. Okay, and that brings us to our section where we answer your TV writing questions that you send in to us. And the first one comes from Tony Faria, who is one of our Patreon supporters. And as a Patreon supporter, he gets sort of first preference to questions answered anytime you want to reach out. And Tony says, Hey, Alex and Nick, thanks so much for the work that you put out. It's massively helpful. My name is Tony. I'm an emerging writer from Toronto. You gave notes on my staff and loot teaser some time ago, and I appreciate your thoughtful feedback there too. I'm applying for some of the few mentorship opportunities that are offered here in Canada, and I have a very small question that I've been overthinking. Is it overkill to send more reference letters than is asked for in a given application guideline? I'm lucky to have three industry reference letters tailored to each application. One application requires just one letter, the others require just two. Neither state that you can't go above and beyond that calling, though, and uh, references seem useful, right? Again, a pretty small logistical thing, but I thought I'd reach out and try to get your thoughts. Please stay safe and healthy. Best, Tony. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting uh, uh, question, uh, Tony, and also you should also stay uh, safe and healthy. In terms of application and reference letters, I mean, personally, I'm always uh, spending more on the side of whatever the program asks is what you should be giving. Usually, if they are open to more reference letters, they'll usually at least uh, leave it open, saying a version of at least one reference letter or something like that. I know, for example, the Disney writing program is well known to ask up to two reference letters and so those are usually optional. Maybe they'll become uh, mandatory since, but at least uh, initially they were optional. So you could send zero, one, or two. And uh, so always you want to maximize that opportunity. I mean, personally, again, I'm wary of adding more reference letters, especially in the context of a writing program where presumably the goal is that you're submitting uh, some kind of writing sample or something about your writing career. So reference letters are useful to a point. So my take would be to really focus on which one of those three or two reference letters are the most bang for your buck, especially in the context where uh, you know exactly the programs you're submitting to. It's important to maybe cross-reference. Uh, maybe they know an alumni there or they're well-versed in this particular genre that the program is specialized in or something like that, that would really make the most impact for those one or two reference letters that you've got. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there, Alex. I think one of the most important things that the sheer number of applications that these programs receive is just following the rules and the guidelines. I think you're risking, if you don't quite follow exactly what they're saying, having your application thrown out or maybe used as a tiebreaker against you know getting through to the next round because you didn't quite do exactly what they asked of you, things like that. You wouldn't send in three scripts if they only asked for one because more scripts is better, right? So I, I don't think I would send in more reference letters than they're asking for either. But like Alex was saying, again, it, yeah, it is a about just tailoring those reference letters. I think I remember in one of our interviews with uh, the heads of the fellowships, they said that they really look at those letters very carefully to see that it's not just 
someone who's like a friend of your uncle who they met once at a bar kind of writing a general letter about you or they really want people who actually know you whether it's a mentor or a former teacher or someone that you've ideally someone that you've worked with in a creative capacity uh, who can speak closely to why you would be good for this thing and again like alex said someone who knows the people involved in that program or the you know execs at that studio or whatever is even better ultimately and this is a recurring motif in pretty much all our interviews with all of the writing programs and that is that Putting the script aside for a second, most, if not all, the writing programs are looking at those applications in a holistic manner. So it's not about weighing one piece of information over the other, again, putting the script aside for a second, but just the rest of the application at the very least is uh, sort of this holistic approach where they look at everything and how everything connects to you as a person. And to Nick's point, the fact that if you have that uh, quote unquote professionally intimate relationship with uh, one or two people that are high up, it's better to focus on that than sort of diluting the impact of those reference letters by adding more to the weight of the application, which ultimately is just going to dilute the overall impact, uh, holistically speaking. And I will say, Tony, that I, I commiserate with the lack of potential opportunities up there in Canada. I mean, as coming from someone from Australia, it's a similar situation. And also, I did live in Canada for a little while, and I looked at what was out there, and there weren't a whole ton of fellowships or programs in the same way. But, you know, even if you might not be able to apply for the American fellowships, if you're required to be a citizen or a resident of the U.S., there are always, you know, the competitions and things like that that you can still submit to. I'm pretty sure that anyone internationally can submit to the Academy Nickel. Uh, you could submit to competitions like the New York TV Fest and just go across the border for that when the world is not on lockdown anymore, things like that. So, so don't let your location stymie your opportunities. Well, on that note, we have another sort of international question from Harry Nandan Ramdas, who asks, hello, I'm an aspiring TV writer based in India. I'm currently undertaking a couple of online courses from the second city in Chicago. I would like to know if there are any program or fellowships that I can enroll in. I see that most of the programs need you to have an LA residency or at least be eligible to work in the U.S., I wish to work for one of those networks in the future or join the writer's room. Are there any programs open to international citizens as well? Any help would be greatly appreciated. Thanks and regards. So that is another really great question. And I guess flows on from what we were just talking about with Tony and, you know, both Alex and I have found ourselves in this situation, living in a country outside the U.S. and trying to figure out how we can get in. Sadly, in terms of the official fellowships and programs, most of those require you to either be a U.S. citizen or at least a U.S. resident. And, you know, especially having permission to work in the U.S. is very important for them, too, because they're trying to then put you into a writer's room or a lot of them, like the Disney one, are actually employing you and paying you for the year. So unfortunately, most of those are going to be off limits. There is still the international Nickelodeon stream, I guess you would call it, where you can apply to that and get access that way where you don't have to be a U.S. citizen. Apparently, they don't always choose someone for that. It kind of happens every couple of years. So it's not a super high chance, but it, it is a chance. And I think just what you're doing right now is the right thing to be doing, taking online courses. There's so much available online these days. And, you know, you having a second city stuff on your resume, UCLA extension, whatever it happens to be, whatever you're allowed to take from overseas is a really great idea because you're learning, you are potentially meeting people through these online courses, and you have writing experience on your resume that people will understand and appreciate in the U.S. once you're able to come over here, either as a visitor or on a work visa or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And I'll just uh, add a couple of things on, on what uh, you just said, Nick. The first thing is, especially with those bigger networks and bigger studios and bigger corporations, because they're so international and global now, you can try to find opportunities locally, or at least other opportunities outside of the U.S. that may be a better fit for you. So at least you have when slash if 
you move to the US, some kind of baseline and history with those companies or those people to translate over a little bit more easily in terms of finding work or uh, trying to find like an assistant gig or something like that. The second thing I'll mention is outside of the writing programs, I feel like competitions can be an interesting stopgap in between that because I don't believe even the bigger uh, screenwriting competitions like Austin, I don't believe you are required and I could be completely wrong on this, but I don't believe you need to be you know, an American or working in the US to be eligible to enter or win one of those TV running competitions, especially because they want to get as many people as possible in those competitions usually. Yeah. And some people actually fly from overseas to attend the festival if they've placed or won. So you're totally right. Exactly. Yeah. So I feel like those are great ways of building that resume wherever you are in the world and they have that cachet attached to them. So whenever slash again, if you move to the US, you can parlay that into something else and even parlay that into interest from representation or other people from those competitions, as we've mentioned many, many times over, especially with that international background, that unique background that people have and that you seem to have. I feel like that's definitely an appeal to people as opposed to uh, something that would distract someone from you. Definitely. Also say from an immigration perspective, obviously I'm not a lawyer and this is not legal advice, but having been through the process myself, the more accolades, the more awards that you have won, the more press that you can have about yourself and your success as a writer is going to make it that much more easy for you to get uh, a visa to come and work over here and to be able to go into a writer's room here. So by all means, do everything you can to get on the radar, to get attention for your writing. And it's all just going to smooth the path to actually being here and working. And our next uh, question comes from Deborah, who says, Hi, Alex and Nick. Thanks for your great episode on writing spec scripts. I'm still sorting out writing a spec script. Should the script be written for the most recent season, or could one write it for the first season? I'm thinking about writing a spec for a U, which currently has just two seasons. Thanks again. Cheers, Deborah. Thanks for the question, Deborah. I mean, this is sort of a recurring uh, question that we get in terms of spec scripts. And my answer to that is usually you want to be either A, as evergreen as possible, or B, as current as possible. And I know those uh, <laughs> things are directly contradictory. But in the case of specs, especially if it's a serialized show or something like that, if you are writing something that uh, is older, like an older season, for example, even if you're writing it in 2020, it will read as if you had written it back then, as opposed to writing a current fresher sample based on the newer season, or even if it's a neither season, if it's more of an evergreen episode that lives uh, in between season one and two, or between season two and three, in, in the example of you, you want to show something that demonstrates not just your ability to write excellently, but also the fact that you can create those scripts in a timely manner, essentially, right? And, and you got to be current with some of it. Now, I would not overthink in terms of where in the season it fits. I mean, I think that's more of a play-by-ear situation based on uh, the stories you want to tell, et cetera, et cetera. But in terms of the macro level where it fits between seasons and uh, when the series is run, it would fit. I would definitely lean toward more recent uh, seasons. Yeah. I mean, Alex is the spec expert, so I defer to him <laughs> on, on this here. But I agree. I think particularly on a show like you that I've seen at least the first season of, and there are quite a lot of, uh, this person's dead now, and then this person's the new villain for the season and whatever. It might feel a little bit weird to be writing something that takes place in the first season with a character that is already <laughs> dead and gone from the second season. So like Alex said, 
uh, maybe try to keep it as current as possible or something that could have happened at any time and isn't reliant on certain supporting characters who may or may not exist anymore. Or you could do you zombies, you know? <laughs> exactly. And uh, last but certainly not least, we have a question from Andy Healy from Twitter, actually. He tweeted uh, multiple people, including uh, both uh, Nick and I, uh, asking script titles to font or not to font. That is the question. No, seriously, I would love to know your takes. For me, I'm totally on board with fonting the title of your script. I wouldn't ever change the font of the body of your script. A lot of people make their cover page look interesting. They put a little graphic on there. They put it in a font that feels like it suits the script. I don't see any issues with that at all. Yeah, I am 100% all in on uh, fonts in uh, cover pages. I believe I've personally used specific fonts for all of my pilot scripts, at least. Like Nick said, I, I really feel like it, at, at the very least, it makes the script stand out in a good way in my mind, or at least memorable in the context of from the first page, again, assuming you don't bloat it with images and other random nonsense. I'm really strictly talking here about the basic font of the title of the script, for example, like something like that that's very minimalistic and simplistic, but also can evoke what the feeling of the show is or what you want to convey on a very simple, almost subtle way in my mind. So really the font choice, and I mean, part of it is obviously procrastination, but you know, you can spend hours just going on defont.com and looking at different fonts that would fit with the page and, and whatnot. And on some level, actually, I mean, maybe this is just uh, myself convincing myself about this, but I do feel like I get a better sense of what the show is or what the pilot is if I get a good font to the front page of this script in a way of, you know, again, it's about like emotion and evoking the style of the show or something like that. Uh, I really feel there's a lot to it. And a lot of it is much more internal than it is, you know, verbalizing what it means. But I'm definitely on the font part. Now, I will mention, though, that if you are using a font, and you're exporting as a PDF, make sure that that font is embedded within the PDF. So that, you know, uh, worst case, if someone doesn't have the font installed on the computer, they can still see the font as is from the PDF. Because that's probably the biggest risk in my mind if you're using a foreign font in that script is that that person doesn't have the font and then there's a weird cross-pollination issue where they sort of see the title but it doesn't look quite right. For sure. I think like you said, anything that can help sell the tone of your show and even honestly just make it stand out a little bit when people open up that PDF or if anyone ever still prints scripts anymore, has it sitting on the desk in a pile of other scripts, it might just make that difference of, you know what script, I'm going to read this one next because it looks kind of intriguing. So uh, go ahead do it. Absolutely. And if you want to ask your own TV running questions to be answered on this podcast, you can always do so at askatpeverteam.co. All right, let's get into some TV writing news. And at the top of the hour is some breaking news. All right. Well, this news might be slightly outdated by the time you hear the episode, but the WGA and AMPTP NBA negotiations just reached a deal and uh, are currently being presented uh, to the guild to vote on. And by presently, I mean uh, presently as we're recording this episode, because by the time you listen to it, I feel like the guild membership will have voted on it. Yeah. So essentially, the negotiating committee and the WGA leadership are happy with it and the AMPTP are happy with it. They just have to get the members of the guild to agree to ratify it. And in most cases, that usually always happens. So, but to give you a little bit of context about the background in these negotiations, you know, they went in with uh, a number of areas, as always, that they wanted to address. But unfortunately, you know, given that we're in the middle of COVID, I think that the leverage was uh, 
a lot less than they usually have. And, and in fact, you know, the reason that the writers are able to get things out of the studios is because they always have the threat of a strike to back them up. If the studios are unwilling to negotiate or give them what they want, they can say, we'll stop work. You won't have any TV shows. You're going to lose a bunch of money. However, we're in the middle of COVID. So the productions are already delayed and shut down. And thus writers stopping work right now wouldn't actually immediately affect the studios anyway. So they really didn't have a credible strike threat as leverage to get exactly what they wanted. Also, given that people are struggling for work in these uncertain times, it's unlikely the membership would have had the stomach for a work stoppage. And it's also just kind of bad optics to strike when barely anyone in the country has a job right now as well. So I think that, you know, they went in a little bit hamstrung as to what they were able to get out of this negotiation. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like it's almost a lose-lose context uh, because even on the studio and network side, I mean, the the fact that or production side, the you know, there's no production happening right now. So it's really hard to even negotiate or gauge what the future of the industry is going to be based on, you know, what's happening right now. We really don't know anything. In terms of the negotiations themselves, I'm really hoping that we can get soon you know, some of the people that were in the room where it happened, I mean, some of our past guests and friends of ours are on the committee. So uh, we are really hoping to get them on the podcast to discuss more about that if slash when that they're able to. But honestly, like you can only do so much in the current context. Like Nick said, the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic and people don't have jobs and even the people that do are at risk of uh, losing those jobs at any moment. It's really hard to negotiate better sales when you don't have any sale in the current context. So we just briefly wanted to go over some of the gains that they did get out of this negotiation. And the first one is that the, uh, the writer training and new writer discounts that were undercutting screen and television minimums and disproportionately impacted underrepresented groups have now been eliminated. I don't know if you're familiar with this, Alex, but I believe at some studios, I think Disney was one of them where they had like this apprentice writer <laughs> position or whatever for staff writers, essentially, or people who were going between writer's assistant and staff writer, and they would essentially be able to pay them under the minimum for what they wanted, or at least that's on the animation side, which might not affect WGA, but it just sounds like there's this weird in-between step for a lot of places and they were able to pay them less, which is kind of ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely. This is actually something we had touched upon in our first episode back. Uh, just the fact that uh, overall, there are the systems that favor more quote unquote established writers in terms of payments as opposed to newer writers, especially when we look at script fees and staff writing positions. I mean, th this is actually a bigger issue. And I believe our episode with the WGA uh, West Committee of Black Writers mentioned that the fact that, you know, if you're on staff, if you're a first time staff writer, you're not going to get a script fee. And those are things that people wanted to negotiate on. But the fact that now you don't have those new writer discounts, especially coming out of fellowships and writing programs where you get those slots at a pay cut, because supposedly they're diversity slots or underrepresented people and so forth really cheats people out of money quite literally and so at least the, this is a positive step that maybe 10 years ago might have seen uh, backwards but now i really feel like it's progress because it really puts the money where you know people's mouths is essentially in terms of it puts the value really where those nascent writers uh, come from and uh, where they belong which is even on staff and at least we're all on the level playing field uh, by that point the next point that they were able to get a gain in was a new paid parental leave fund, which is available to all WGA writers who qualify for health insurance. The benefits will begin in May of 2021, and it's entirely funded by employer contributions of 0.5% on the writer's earnings. So this seems like a huge win, you know, having such a freelance basis or nature for, of that work, you're not working for an employer where you're racking up paid leave and, uh, you know, parental benefits and whatever. So if a writer wanted to take a break to have a kid or help look after their kid or whatever it happened to be, uh, you would essentially just be not working working for a while and hoping you had enough money saved.
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, America is very backwards in terms of paid parental leave compared to the rest of the world. So I'm glad that uh, on some level there are gains uh, being made. And especially now where we're moving towards rooms that are much more inclusive of essentially parents. I mean, I feel like there's been a lot of conversation and, and probably there's going to be a lot more to come about working mothers, working dads, whether or not they're bringing uh, kids into the room or not, or at least having a working environment that favors and doesn't discriminate against people with kids or people who are pregnant et cetera, et cetera. I really feel that this is a step in the right direction overall. The next point was the pension fund will receive an immediate 1.5% contribution increase to 10%. You can divert an additional 1.25% from minimums, the final two years of the contract to, to buff up the pension. Overall, they just basically increased the amount of money in the pension plan, which was a big goal of negotiation because, you know, again, <laughs> this is another fundamental thing that people need to survive and to keep living after retirement. So making sure that that's well-funded enough. And unfortunately, you know, when income dips into the, the guild, certain things like the health plan and the pension plan get defunded and they don't have enough money to pay people out of that. So it's uh, very important that we keep those funding levels high. Pension funding is pretty much an evergreen issue in the guild as far as I'm concerned in terms of this is something that is going to continuously uh, come up uh, over and over again and just uh, based on the membership and the fact that in our world, we obviously live longer well hopefully we live longer and longer and there's a wider and wider base, pension funding needs to increase by definition. So uh, at least it's important uh, to the guild, especially the, you know, the higher levels of the guild. And so it's an important factor there that they're addressing. And lastly, the big gain that we we're able to get was uh, improved protections for TV writers in the area of options and exclusivity, including specific limitations on options after short periods of employment and expanding the number of writers covered by the span protections first negotiated in 2017. So essentially what this means is that shows were having a short run, let's say six to eight episodes or you know, your usual 20 weeks or whatever, but they were keeping their writers under option to be able to bring them back for another season. So they essentially couldn't take work on any other shows for the rest of the year, especially, you know, in the TV space. So what ended up happening was even if you were paid a really great amount of money for that limited run, you then are unable to do any more work for the rest of the year on other TV shows. So you're then averaging out that income over the entire year and it reverts back down to essentially the minimum, which is insane. So they were able to basically address that by setting certain limits limitations on how long they can keep people under option and how much money they have to pay them if they do so. And I think it reverted to more of a per episode payment than a per week or a time period payment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for my money, this is actually one of the bigger issues moving forward with television and the evolution of TV. I, I think I might have even mentioned it in our State of Access episode uh, sometime last year. But essentially, the fact that we have those diminishing uh, amount of episodes being produced overall, despite the fact that we have, you know, more and more shows being produced, you know, you can have 100 shows, but they're not all going to be 22 episode seasons, right? They're getting shorter and shorter as time goes on. And uh, even more so, uh, those uh, shorter seasons and shorter shows will have fewer and fewer writers in the rooms because by definition, there's fewer episodes. And so that creates sort of like a self-fulfilling effect where you just are working not necessarily on one show all year as you used to, but on hopefully several shows across the year, or if you're unlucky on one show that's really short, and then you have to wait a very long time before either that show comes back or you're able to jump on another show. So it's very important that those negotiations happen where they allow those writers to be free to pursue other options besides that very essentially limited series option. So definitely something to look out for moving forward. I, I still feel there's a lot more to be done in terms of script fees and guarantees, especially moving forward in terms of shows that are getting shorter and shorter episode runs. I, I feel like, again, it's hard to 
be too critical about negotiations in the pandemic. But overall, I really feel like this is a topic that is going to be very important moving forward. Definitely. So those were the major gains that they were able to get out of this contract. And obviously, another big thing is that they were able to stop any significant rollbacks. Uh, and rollbacks are essentially when the studio comes and says, you know what, we did give you this thing, but we're, we don't want to do that anymore. It's too expensive, or it's too whatever. They start from that position of like, they come to the table and say, we want to take things away instead of giving you anything. And that's why they need to have this big negotiation. So a lot of that we don't see how much effort has been put into fighting these rollbacks as well as getting these gains. But that said, there were a number of areas that were not addressed in these negotiations or unable to, to have ground gained on them. Apparently, from people inside the room, the studio was essentially unwilling to negotiate anything for feature writers. They just didn't even want to put it on the table. They didn't want to have a discussion about it at all, no matter how hard they pressed. So unfortunately, what that means is that a number of the areas that were affecting feature writers are still exactly as they were and are going to be that way for the next three years, including these low-budget streaming minimums for features, which essentially allow them to pay people under scale or negotiate negotiation of whatever they want because they're like it's a low budget film for a streaming service we can't afford to pay you the same as a big hollywood movie but realistically it's for something like netflix or amazon who has all the money in the world and they can and should be paying people appropriate minimums for those deals to that point i feel it's sort of an interesting uh, meta commentary about the leadership and the guild at large in terms of the shift from uh, feature writers into really tv writers being uh, the mainstay uh, on the board and especially the negotiations I just feel there is some conversation to be had at some point about, and in fact, I feel it's sort of an evergreen conversation, but, you know, back in the day, it was much more uh, feature focused. And now, especially probably since I would say 2008-ish, maybe slightly earlier than that, the pendulum has really shifted and moved towards uh, TV writing or TV writers as the priority. So... Especially in this era of COVID, it's interesting that because so much production is being stopped and stalled and so many people are out of jobs, that the priority has always been, or at least currently is about TV artists, because in a way, they're having the most recurring revenue, or at least the most recurring uh, job opportunities uh, in the long run, at least in theory. Uh, in practice, I doubt that's actually the case, but it's interesting to compare and contrast those two issues, especially because more and more, the overlap between TV writers and feature writers, you know, the Venn diagram is really a circle or has become a circle more and more. So something else to watch out for. You know, that said, there are still a lot of people who are solely feature writers or majority feature writers. And there is this predominant feeling of having been ignored in the negotiations, both this year and in previous years. And, you know, the issue with that is that like the feature writers have really taken solidarity with the TV writers a number of times in every time that they've been willing to strike for them. And even just recently in the whole agency negotiation thing, they fired all of their agents, which is the main way that feature writers get work because they don't go into writers' rooms. They don't meet a ton of other writers just necessarily through their work who are able to get them more work. They are relying on managers and agents and relationships that they already have with producers. So firing feature agents was a really big thing for them. And now it kind of feels like they've been let down by the TV writers in response. At least that's what I'm hearing from feature writers. The big difference is essentially that feature writers are project-based, right? You have to keep fighting for the next project and next project. Whereas again, this is shifting obviously, but on paper, the TV writer is a, a much more ongoing, regular, quote-unquote, stable job, right? At, at the point where that person is staffed and the show is successful, or at least the show runs uh, across uh, several seasons, whereas the feature writer has to keep fighting for those job opportunities now. Obviously, we all know how <laughs> that TV writers also are fighting for those opportunities, but at least that's the perception of it. So when feature writers are firing their agents in solidarity with TV writers, there are arguably slightly more damage than TV writers, I would contend, 
at least immediately. Uh, now, obviously, for TV artists, there's a staffing season problem, but it's much harder to parlay sort of a feature gig, I feel like, than it is to parlay a staffing gig because a staffing gig is intrinsically uh, team-based. And so you probably have or hopefully have some kind of connection with Shorner or people on staff. Whereas uh, on the feature side, there's no team per se. There's only the studio, the, you know, there's the people, the production company, the people at the top, but you don't really have a group of writers to rely on to get that gig. Right. And there are countless issues that are very real that are facing feature writers. I mean, we just mentioned the low budget streaming minimums, but there's also this idea of so many feature contracts are one step deals, which just means we're going to pay you once to write this script and that's all the money you're getting. However, the producers then expect rewrites, they expect polishes and whatever that are not included in that contract because that's just sort of how it goes. It's like, oh, we'll just make these little tweaks for me just before we, you know, the producer says it before they get it over to the studio. And then the studio is like, you know what, if we just change this thing and this thing, and then you're doing all of this free work, theoretically, every step and every rewrite you do should be paid. People like to work around that in the feature world. So uh, one of the big things they wanted was, you know, mandating at least like two-step deals so that they can get paid a little bit more for what they're doing, things like that. So that's another one. And unfortunately, when they're not being paid enough on these low budget streaming minimums, these one-step deals, it's really difficult for them to reach the pay threshold they require to get the healthcare minimums. A lot of people will get a feature length script deal and still not even have enough money to qualify for healthcare under the WGA. Sometimes you can get two feature deals and still not qualify because of the way that the system is right now, which is ridiculous. Plenty of issues facing feature writers. It's unfortunate that they weren't able to address any gains in that. And I think that we're going to see a lot of pushback from that part of the guild. And uh, some people say that this was even intentional on the studio's part to sow more discord in the guild uh, because they're then able to exploit that to present a, you know, a weaker front for the next negotiations. So <laughs> that's a 4D chess in a nutshell. Chaos is a ladder. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the last big thing I think that was worth mentioning that they were unable to get any gains on in this contract negotiation was writing teams having formerly been a member of writing team myself, I can say that it is not a great position to be in financially. You are essentially the two of you are being paid the salary of one person and you're splitting that. Um, so it ends up averaging out to being not being paid much more than an assistant. And there are a number of people, especially in the WGA side, that also uh, have issues qualifying for healthcare because they are assessed individually for their healthcare stuff. And so if they're making half of one writer's salary, that doesn't get them healthcare. So again, big issues facing a lot of people that weren't able to be helped out by this one. Yeah. And again, just to circle back to the very first game that was mentioned, I mean, really the script fee is something else to watch out for moving forward, especially getting parity in, in terms of payment, especially for newer staff writers and, and store editors. That's a huge, huge uh, issue that hopefully the guild is aware of, and I'm, I'm sure they're aware of it, but the writer discount being removed is definitely a step in the right direction. But overall, uh, we will see if the membership ratifies it. I'm assuming so, uh, because uh, why really would they not at this point? But TBD, you listening to this, probably no more than us recording this episode. And uh, like we said uh, before, hopefully we get some other uh, guild members on the podcast very soon to discuss much more about the MBA and the negotiations. Yeah, my guess is that they're going to ratify it, but there will be a significant pro just no vote, especially from feature writers, just to indicate that we are not being looked after. So we'll see. 
On that note, let's move on to a couple of other news items that we want to highlight. One is something that we had mentioned at the top of this episode, and that is that Latoya Morgan scored an amazing overall deal with WBTV recently. Yeah, it's uh, super awesome. Latoya had previously just come off of back-to-back deals with AMC, where she was also running their uh, diversity program there. So now she's actually kind of coming back home to roost at the WBTV, uh, where she first started in their fellowship there and worked on a number of WB shows. So um, congratulations to Latoya, and we're very excited for what you're going to work on there. And uh, speaking of success from alumni or of the podcast, you, we also have a Caillou Wu who sold uh, a show uh, called Nancy Wu Done It uh, at Amazon. It's a mystery comedy with Jessica Henwick. Caillou Wu is just killing also the game in terms of being uh, on Paper Girls, on Amazon and Carnival Row. Uh, really, she's crushing it in every single way. Yeah, and I also just wanted to mention on top of all of her other successes, Kai Wu is currently a mentor for the Imagine Impact Australia branch, I guess. They're running an Imagine Impact program in Australia as well, and she's uh, mentoring one of the Australian writers and creatives who's coming through that system. So I wanted to just say thank you from my home country as well. On that note, before we go, don't forget that we are, of course, on Patreon. So if you enjoyed this episode and all the other ones, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You'll get access to our Paper Patreon podcast cheat sheets and of course as always there's a dedicated paper tease a slot just for our patreon supporters so you can access that at paperteam.co slash patreon and also so we can keep producing an amazing show like this one for you every week yeah so thanks to our listeners for taking the time to tune in you can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 183 as always i'm on twitter at tv calling I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, or questions, uh, especially TV or any questions you would like answered on this very podcast, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co. And what are we doing next week? Well, next week, we are going to be taking a look at uh, TV pilot scope. So that is essentially the scope of your TV pilot. Where do you start? Where does it end? And how does that fit into your overall series? And uh, on that note, we'll see you next week.